Karl Popper talks about the free market in ideas. And this implies the idea that in a free market, uh, the best ideas win. Like in a free market for cars or cookies, uh, the best cars and cookies win. Well, how are we going on that? Do we think that uh, the increasingly free market in sound bites, in quick comments by anyone, is that improving the arguments that we see? Is it improving which arguments win or is it doing something else? Welcome to Thunder Off Script, a podcast for lovers of freedom. It's Friday, 20th of May, 2022. In today's episode, I'm honored to interview Dr. Nicholas Grun on the contribution of the digital public sphere to a good society. Nicholas Grun is a policy economist, entrepreneur and commentator on our economy and society. He's CEO of Lateral Economics, visiting professor at King's College London Policy Institute and adjunct professor at UTS Business School. He's advised cabinet ministers, sat on Australia's Productivity Commission and founded Lateral Economics and Peach Financial in 2000. He's had regular columns in the Courier Mail, the Australian Financial Review, The Age, and the Sydney Morning Herald, and has published numerous essays on political, economic, and cultural matters. In 2009, he chaired the Australian government's Government 2.0 Task Force on how governments can best respond to the advent of the internet and social media, which will be very relevant to our discussion today. He has a BA in history, a graduate diploma in economics, and a PhD from the ANU Um, and an LLB honours from the University of Melbourne. And uh, I'm just very happy to have um, Dr. Gruen with us. So welcome, Nicholas. Uh, Thank you for coming on this podcast. Thanks, David. Um, I think we'll, I'll just start by saying that how I actually met, so to speak, Nicholas, um, in the, in the sort of blogosphere and online, um, is that uh, he put a very perceptive uh, comment um, on one of my blogs, on one of my blog posts, um, where I had discussed the issue of censorship, um, censorship of social media specifically. And I had suggested in my post that um, a free public sphere in which there was not um, censorship, or at least there was very little censorship, would permit different perspectives to duel it out with each other. And this is a kind of a John Stuart Mill approach Mm. to public discourse. And I had suggested that by giving them leeway to duel things out, that we could be exposed to the evidence on both sides of the question and that therefore we would get a fuller uh, picture of reality. Um, But Nicholas, in his uh, response to that, um, said that he was somehow somewhat disappointed for this approach to be coming from um, someone who is a self-proclaimed virtue theorist. 
um, and that it was reductive of me to focus uh, specifically on procedures and rules in relation to the public sphere, when obviously there were much more profound issues related to character um, uh, that went beyond character and even way of life that went far beyond the rules that structure our public sphere. And I found this comment, um, I have to admit, at first, um, a little bit bracing or a little bit kind of, it, it, it pricked my ego and my pride, as most criticisms do. Yes, I but do. I, but, I, but I calmed down and I thought it through and I thought to myself, well, he's, he's right that it is a bit reductive what I've just said. But in fact, I don't necessarily have to retract everything I've said. I just have to no. flesh it out and I have to deepen the point and take into consideration the limitations of our public yeah. sphere as it currently stands. So yeah. I think maybe what, what I'll start with, Nicholas, is I'll just ask you in relation to that point, um, uh, what do you think is missing in the perspective that focuses on, say, public speech from the point of view of either censorship or non-censorship, you know, um, procedural freedom? Um, yeah. What is what is incomplete about that approach to the public sphere? Well, I think if we if we uh, I don't I don't mean this this is a I'm going to express myself hyperbolically. I don't mean it as an insult, but if we haven't noticed that if we haven't noticed by now that a free market in ideas does not produce what some theorists of the economy tell us that a free market in an economy does. In other words, uh, it's very plausible that at least where markets work well, that we leave them alone and they come up, they don't come up with perfect results, but they come up with very good results. And they give us an ability to say, well, I don't like that car and I'll, but I like that car and I'll, and, and, and producers notice those decisions when they're made in any volume and they respond and we get very much what we want. And it was okay to apply this analogy. And the analogy is the free market in ideas. And Karl Popper talks about the free market in ideas, uh, philosopher Karl Popper. And this implies the idea that in a free market, uh, the best ideas win. Uh, like in a free market for cars or cookies, uh, the best cars and cookies win. Well, how are we going on that? Do we think that uh, the increasingly free market in sound bites, in quick comments by anyone, is that improving the arguments that we see? Is it improving which arguments win or is it doing something else? So I see that as absolutely existential for our species, he said dramatically. And I see the issue that you're talking about of free speech as an important one. And I, as I said on the website, I'm very sympathetic to the position you found yourself in. In fact, it's outrageous what happened to you. But the answer is not as simple as free speech. Um, and, and that, and, and I think if we're not to attach these questions to this existential problem, um, we find ourselves maybe on the right side for us, but the wrong side for the species. Uh, but as I say, I wanna get to an answer which gives an, 
which gives the right answer for you and for people like you. It's completely outrageous that because you expressed some uh, views that have been kind of codified as unacceptable, um, that they just wiped you out uh, without review or anything like that. I disagree with one or two of those views of yours and I agree with some of the others. I agree, I think, that it should be fine to talk about ivermectin. It should be fine to say ivermectin is, we know how to administer ivermectin safely and maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. And we should try to have a process of responsible experimentation. And if people want to take it, that's fine. Um, that's kind of roughly what you said. And I think that's just fine. Um, unfortunately, I've watched quite a lot of people march off in a rightward direction. I don't say that because I'm against the right, particularly uh, if I was to characterize my political position and take a little time, not that long, but that's not the reason. It is the reason that this is an issue which gives the right no trouble uh, at the moment. They just say free speech because they're the ones getting kicked off. Um, and, you know, I, I'm pretty anti-woke. <laughs> Um, and I'm pretty aggro about the kinds of things that are happening, very much in sync with the things you're aggro about, but I don't think uh, tossing my hand in with the Donald Trumps of the world is an answer. In fact, it's, it's, it would be worse than doing the opposite. Uh, so so that's, the, that's what's in the in-trade for us. And I want to, and and I want to, and I and I want to enrich in the discussion about this, uh, and try to uh, make some sense of it. Although I don't have any, uh, and this is part of my message in a sense, I don't have any quick. Uh, here's the answer. I don't have an answer for you. I don't have uh, a little uh, bill of rights or a little set of instructions I can give you and say the law should look exactly like this and our problems will go away. That's sure. kind of part of the problem. And I would call that reductive. Right. Okay. Well, so I think one way we might think about this is think of it along the, along the lines of a kind of, uh, a medical, um, diagnosis, like a metaphor, like Hobbes does about the body sure. politics. Well, I think we, that's a good idea. Yeah, so 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 maybe we, for example, um, we've discussed some of the symptoms of an ailing public sphere, and um, two two symptoms that I can think of right now. Um, one is just the fact that um, unpopular voices are easily censored by big tech and quite readily censored. Um, yes, uh, I outrageously. Think that's, a, that's and that is a symptom of a public sphere that is not in good shape, that some voices yeah. are arbitrarily either sidelined or, or simply silenced. Um, and the other, the other symptom that I see is a degradation, which you referred to, in the quality of discourse, meaning that, um, let's yeah. say, that just the fact that very superficial and emotivist types of yes. com comments and, and sound bites um, can get an inordinate amount of attention yeah. Whereas any kind of serious, sustained argument, um, yeah. particularly a dialogic kind of argument in which there are two or more parties engaging yeah. with each other, yeah. 
um, yeah. from different sides. That that is that is actually the exception, not the rule. In a, absolutely. So yeah. um, if we can agree that these are some of the symptoms of an ailing public sphere, then we get to one of the tricky parts, which is the diagnosis. So what uh, I mean. Um, what what is the the underlying why is it ailing like this why is it doing so poorly um i mean uh i know it's a very broad question but maybe yeah, just, no, no. i'm just priming you a little bit to see what what occurs to yeah. you in terms of say what's well, driving these yeah, yeah yeah well i've given this a lot of thought and normal you know i don't like being asked such broad questions if i haven't if i don't think i've got something to say but i think i do and um, I don't know. I don't think I've sent this to you, but I'm sure you'll be familiar with the ideas. Uh, an essay I wrote, um, but I'm sure you'll be familiar with the ideas of um, Alistair McIntyre, virtue, yes. the virtue, virtue ethicist, yes. and he distinguishes between internal goods and external goods, and he uses the example of a game of chess to um, to illustrate internal goods and external goods. And we're teaching a young girl to play chess, and she's not that keen on learning at the at the time. But we think she'll get something out of it out of her life if she learns this code. Uh, she'll be able to play it her whole life. Maybe it'll maybe she'll be good at it, and maybe she'll enjoy it. And it's a social skill anyway. And so we offer her candy if she can beat somebody playing chess, and she learns the chess game now. The idea here, uh, Alistair McIntyre's idea, is that there are internal goods of chess and external goods of chess. External goods are the things that are outside the game that you benefit from. So if you win, if she wins the game of chess and it makes her feel good, that's an external good. Um, the candy that she can pick up is an external good. And the internal goods are things like concentration, competitive, spirit or competitive intensity, uh, analysis, a spatial, the spatial sense you get out of being good at the game. They're intrinsic to doing well at the game and they have a kind of an ethical quality about them. They require one to be inside the game and treating the game as a, as a not just a technical system, but an ethical system. Uh, now, once she sees the candy, she has a temptation to cheat. She has a temptation to win, maybe by saying, by telling, you know, by distracting you or quietly removing a pawn when you're not looking or something like that. Um, and that is, and, and so Alistair McIntyre's idea is that these external goods are necessary for the game to go on. In, you can think of them as um, a lawyer practicing the internal goods to law, which is truthfulness, analytical power, and the external goods are mainly the money, uh, but also the reputation you have and so on. And they're always at some tension with the internal goods. Once the external goods start to motivate you, you have a, an incentive to cut corners and to win a case, if you're a lawyer, to win a case without really deserving to win a case, uh, because you found out that that lawyer was uh, too busy, and if you put on a, if you put on a, a an objection at a particular time, they weren't going to have the capacity to do the work they needed to before the next hearing. For instance, 
Um, and uh, McIntyre uh, also calls these external goods in later writing, he calls the external goods, if I've got it correctly, and you may want to correct me on this, he calls them goods of efficacy. Uh, I'm not sure. And, and the other ones are goods of excellence. The goods, the internal goods are goods of excellence, true excellence yeah. of the thing itself. And the other ones are, are goods of efficacy. Mm -hmm. So that's my sort of deep or theoretical explanation for what's happening on social media, which is that these goods, uh, that, that competition drives the struggle to be effective, okay? If you're competing with people, you're not struggling to be better than them. Um, you're not struggling to be better than them morally. You're competing with them to get the upper hand in the argument. So we have this collapse into instrumentalism, this collapse into whatever works and what works is what, uh, again, sorry to dial up the drama, but that's, you know, as Hitler said, I leave, I use my reason to argue with my colleagues and I use emotion to argue with, to talk to the people. And that's what works. And a whole panoply of techniques work. And in fact, I would argue that this sort of occurred to me in a discussion I had with someone who was busily being cancelled by some people for completely absurd reasons. Um, I would argue that that's really behind a lot of wokeness. A lot of wokeness is to grab, is to manipulate a situation where you can grab the moral high ground without having to having done anything good. You get it because of the color of your skin, your gender, how, however much you can portray yourself as a victim, however much, however many intersectionality points you've managed to rack up and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a system of pure legibility for argument without any reference to what the argument's about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah. so this is a bit, you know, so that's, my idea of what the problem is, uh, and your problem is a is a a, a particular case of that, mm. uh, a particular case of getting caught up in this great cultural collapse or this great cultural um, paroxysm, and you've got a money making uh, social network that is trying to its main way to understand what it's doing is. How's it, its main question for itself is how are we making money? It's got a staff to keep happy, and they seem to be lefty woke types. Mm. Uh, and 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 we we can see the result there. Since I accused you of being reductionist, well, they're the ultimate reductionists. They're they're trying to come up with some simple ways of navigating uh, a world which is difficult for them as well. Yeah. So it seems that there's a peculiar combination of ideology or politics and money um, or money, money, money motives, profit mot motives, um, because um, because it's, at least it seems to me that um, the instrumentalization of public discourse that you're referring to um, can occur in two ways that are that just seem to be very often go together or they seem to be somehow interwoven. And one of those ways is, um, and the woke movement for me is an example of this, one of those ways is where certain political goals 
um, a certain vision of the kind of society you want to live in becomes yeah. much more important than the truth, much more important than the truth. And um, I mean, there are people, some people on the left who will openly admit that seeking the truth is not their first priority, that then in fact, getting a certain kind of uh, political goals, uh, achieving certain political goals is the most important thing. And even if it means I have to lie or manipulate in order to get those goals, I will do it. Now, you'd have to, that would have to be somebody who's extremely frank to admit that openly. But, mm. um, but for me, that, that does, it does look like that's what's happening. Um, and, um, and so that helps explain for me why some people who are making arguments from an ideological and political standpoint are so resistant to correction any kind of rational correction, they resist it. And just, sorry, just to finish this point, um, basically the other motive that I think is very strong is money because um, media, large media organs and corporations, um, basically they want to increase the, the number of views and clicks because that gets them more advertising revenue. Yeah. That's so right. these two things seem to, seem, seem to, and sometimes they separate, sometimes they go together. Often they do go together, but sometimes they can be. It can even be the case that arguably, some people argue that Twitter is hurting itself financially by mm. mistreating so many of its potential customers. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. So I guess uh, I, I I guess then this leads to a really kind of the really hard question, and I I, I know you have some ideas on this issue, which is uh, where do we go from here? What how do we, um, what types of even baby steps or medium steps could be taken to help to um, renew uh, the vibrancy of our public sphere and to give it a little bit more of an ethical tone? Yeah. So let me slow down a bit because I want to mm. challenge, I think you, I want to challenge you by saying, I think you're being way too kind to the people you disagree with. I don't think they're moved. I mean, They'll say they're moved by a vision of society, and in some sense, yes. But that's not, um, you know, you don't learn new tricks by working backwards from your vision of society. You just learn tricks. And if you're in combat, you learn that if you say, you learn that if you say, I'm offended, if you say, I'm feeling trauma, that's a trump card. You win the, you, you win the debate. If I'm, if I'm debating somebody, Who's um, uh, who, who can place themselves much lower on the hierarchy of intersectionality. And they say that what I'm doing is erasing their experience and creating trauma for them and making them feel unsafe. How do I respond to that? There's only one way to respond, which is to say, I'm terribly sorry. I mean, I really, I'm very sorry. I, I'm sure you're telling me the truth and I've traumatized you. And the only mm. thing I can do is offer you an apology. Mm. Well, that's, we're not going to, we're not, uh, well, there you are. If it's a debate and someone is trying to get the better of me, they've already won. Or mm. I say, pig's ass. Or I say, yes, you might, it's possible you feel traumatized and so on. But, but, Maybe then don't spend so much time on Twitter. Maybe then don't argue with me. 
uh, I don't think I'm such a bad guy, but, you know, I'm a human being and I do bad things, but I think you're a bullshit artist and you probably believe the bullshit that you're hitting me with here, but it's bullshit. Uh, so, so this isn't coming out of some vision of society. It's not, it's not even coming out of a, a sort of politics dominating the truth. It's, it's like a, it's like the sort of, um, the sort of, it's sort of instantly, it's instantly promoted to the meta layer where people are, are maneuvering to frame the discussion with them as the, with the moral high ground without much reference to the actual content. Um, yeah. And that's the nature of the discussion. So it's more like talking about a kind of a new set of manners, a new way to conduct uh, a, a discussion. Um, so, and, and I'm, I must say, I'm, I feel this kind of goes a lot, very deep. And, and all I would say is I would quote Nietzsche to you on the question of the truth. The truth is a long way from us human beings. You know, it, mm. we, 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 <laughs> we've got all sorts of instincts of self-protection, of aggression, of power, and that business of the truth uh, we shouldn't flatter too many of ourselves that we are very interested in it. I, I don't quite use the term truth very much. I, but, but anyway, I mean, obviously here I am saying that I have an interest in the truth, saying that I want to try and get to the truth. But I'm much more interested in the mechanisms of getting there, how toxic those mechanisms are, and how the only way for you and me to get to the truth if we have a strong disagreement is for each of us to be prepared to bear discomfort. And, yeah. and that's not what these people are prepared. The slightest yeah. whiff of discomfort and you get the trump card being played. And that's the opposite of a process which might take you somewhere as opposed to an, an immediate power struggle, an immediate conversational power struggle. So that's, we're training ourselves more and more. Social media is training, training us more and more to reach for all of the tricks of conversation, to grab the moral high ground, to reframe the discussion in our own mm. favor, rather than to take on board the thing that might make us uncomfortable. Yeah, well, um, I, I suppose I would push back a little bit uh, and just say mm. that um, while I agree with you that there are people out there who really are are quite cynical i would say um because they don't really have a vision of they don't society. experience they don't experience themselves as cynical almost nobody experiences themselves mm. as manipulative they, we do this in our sleep we yeah. we we uh if you're a manipulative person you you don't think oh i'm a, i mean you don't think I'm, oh, let me manipulate someone. It's, it's second nature. It's all happening well, at the level of second nature. That's, that's a fair point. So let's just say that it's probably possible to be unconsciously cynical, actually, and, and without making it explicit to oneself. But uh, that's another debate. But let's just say that it does seem to me that there are people who are power hungry, very power hungry, yeah, and and who use 
class uh, differences, let's say class debate, class rhetoric, class language, and well, language I'd say intersectional intersectionality. Okay. Uh, and, um, yeah. yeah. And in uh, fact, uh, the the very interesting thing about intersectionality is that class has, uh, you know, class comes and goes with intersectionality, yeah. but black doesn't come and go, and women and gender doesn't come and go, and sexual yes. orientation doesn't come and go. Class is rather unfashionable, you know. Yes. So, is, so it it's it's a bit more it's a bit more ambiguous, and that's a very interesting thing, in my opinion, because class is what's tearing the world apart, not those other yeah. things. Anyway, you go on. So basically, it seems to me class more in the sense of category of categories of people in which some people oppress yes. others. Um, That's or right. Some people are depicted as oppressing others or being part of yeah. the oppressing class. I That's think right. that kind of rhetoric is used by some people, probably by quite a few people, um, basically used in a very cynical way. Let's just say in a very um, unprincipled way, in a way that is not uh, sensitive to um, considerations, truth-seeking considerations. Um, mm. Whereas there are other people who join those, let's say, uh, causes um, in good faith um, because they've read an article here or there, um, because they have friends who have convinced them, or maybe they've had some personal experience that's in informed them um, and have brought them to this place in their life where they they really want to do something. And they they feel kind of drawn into this discourse. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so in a sense, obviously, the world is a comp very complicated place with different kinds of people, um, different uh, motivations. But it, it really strikes me that there are so many people that I would say um, are basically... Uh, I suppose I could say something like well-intentioned, but also not necessarily power grabbers or power seekers um, who think they're, they think they're really helping people and they ju jump on the bandwagon of this discourse um, mm. and they kind of get sucked into it without necessarily understanding its full implications or having a critique in their minds of what's going on. Um, yeah. But 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 I guess um, that's not to deny that there are people who are more uh, much more calculating and much more politically motivated who are involved in these in these. Yeah, I I think they I I think that group um, is quite very small. I think almost everyone thinks of themselves as a good actor, and and I don't. And I think once one assumes that the people you're dealing with don't don't in some genuine sense feel that they're speaking that that speaking that that, that they're well, what they're saying is right in some sense once mm. you just think you're dealing with a completely cynical actor there's not much point in saying any more mm. um so i don't so, so i think i don't agree that i think the vast majority of people think that they're um in good faith and let me give you an example um it, so if we wanted to make a woke critique of this conversation between you and me, we would say that it's two white men having a chat about these difficult social issues. Now, I don't want to rule that kind of comment out. I think that's a very legitimate comment to make. It's just that in the end, as we have a discussion Whatever anyone says that is the which uh, 
gets to a better place than someone else, uh, it doesn't care. It doesn't matter whether they're white, blue, brindle, or what, whatever they are. So, so, um, but what has happened is that this very simple trick, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a trick, and that this this language of very high levels of visibility of legibility who's good and who's bad we can work that out very quickly we can work out who the goody and who the baddie is most of us hanker for that we have a hankering for knowing the answer to those sorts of questions um, because it helps us orient ourselves it, it, it makes us comfortable and so on so so it's not that i want to i i think the that, that there is something about wokedom that is entirely legitimate, which is to say that the more of these, um, you know, the more if you're black and a woman and a lesbian or whatever, then and and, and you're poor, then that's some, you know, that's that's a big deal. And but 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 how that then plays into um, discourse is a difficult business. That's the that's a very introductory observation um there's a lot of work to be done to turn that into something which is gonna help us um but it tells some it tells us some things it tells us that we're doing what we're trained to do and feel most comfortable doing we're spouting off carrying on and so on those many of those people are not well trained to do that and if we were to have a really good discussion with them we'd have to learn ways to listen to them that uh we're not we're not trained in they'd have to learn ways of talking to us that we're not trained in um it's hard work well it's much easier to just snap your fingers uh and grab the high ground and say there's oh well that's just two white men and we're going to make a rule that yeah. for instance every panel we have has to have somebody has to have a woman on it. Yeah. Strikes me as a pretty stupid rule. Uh, yeah. but, but 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 the intention yeah. but the intention behind it is a good intention. Yeah. Yeah. So um so we've kind of been circling towards um towards maybe some kind of uh well it won't be a solution like a kind of what do we do about solution. it what do we do yeah, about it? what do you want to know what do we do it? i mean and and i and I'll, I'll just give a start with i'll give the easy part of the what i consider to be the easier part of the answer yeah. um which i think you'd probably agree is has to be part of the answer which is to reduce the amount of censorship to reduce the the let's just say to make so the censorship is not just simply a political decision that well i don't like what you said so i'm going to shut your account um in other words i think uh like for example i i think that if elon musk actually uh it's looking less less likely than before that he will end up closing the deal but let's supposing let's suppose he does buy twitter um i think if he manages to if he manages to liberalize the sort of the information control the content moderation rules in twitter um that will be a modest but important step towards cleaning up the public sphere. Now, uh, as you mentioned in your comments on my blog, that's certainly a very insufficient, insufficient yeah. step. But let's yeah. just say to get the ball rolling, I'll just say mm. that as a first step or as one step, 
would you like to complement it with other things that you think should be done? Yeah, okay. So can I, I, I want to just go back one step uh, because I want to talk big, because I'm, I'm trying to attack this in as deep a way as I can. Mm -hmm. And I want to go back one step, and this is to talk about competition. The idea that competition is always the answer. And, and in some senses, talking about free speech is an appeal to competition to, to some extent. Um, and this is Alistair McIntyre, a devastating passage, I think, in um, After Virtue, which is his, his sort of breakthrough book, his blockbuster book. Um, it published in 1981, so a long time ago now, that's uh, 20, That's 40 years. Uh, he says, in any society which recognised only external goods, and I'm arguing that that's what our problem is, that we're recognising only effectiveness in argument, not good argument or discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, in any society with, which recognised only external goods, competitiveness would be the dominant and even exclusive feature. We should therefore expect that if in a particular society the pursuit of external goods were to become dominant, the concept of the virtues might suffer first attrition and then perhaps something near total effacement, although simulacra might abound. Well, wokeism is simulacra of virtue. Now, why am I why do I want to begin there? Well, um, one of the things that I want to do is I want to ask this question, how do we build into an open system uh, recognition of and rewards for, and I'm just talking about cultural rewards for, um, virtue, or to, to sound less uh, of, of a fuddy-duddy about it, um, an engagement with others which is a true engagement of which is trying to be an exchange of views, a, a genuine attempt to understand the other's point of view and engage with it. Mm -hmm. So a friend of mine built a website and uh, he's a he's a philosopher, would you believe? And he built a website. It's now in mothballs, but I thought it had a very powerful idea in it. And it was a discussion website. So it's a bit like um it's a bit like Twitter or Facebook. It's a, it's a, or a blog. It's a place where people uh, debate issues. And he would seed this with questions, political questions, like, well, like the one we're discussing today. Should Twitter be, you know, uh, should we ban insults on Twitter, for instance? Mm -hmm. um, and what he then did is he built algorithms to detect what he called. In his true, you know, in bringing out his true inner philosopher, epistemic virtues, not a great marketing term, but um, he tried to work out who on the platform was behaving uh, in a way that was conducive to the platform getting somewhere, uh, the discussion developing. Mm. And the best way to summarize this, and it's very oper it's highly operational, which is important, means you can apply it. One of the key, one of the, the best way to explain what an epistemic virtue is, is to explain one of them, one of the key ones, which is that you were rated more highly, those people were rated more highly who were well thought of by people who disagreed with them. Now you can see the value of that. You can see that that's pointing in the direction of a culture of engagement 
rather than screaming at each other. Mm-hmm. And so that's my way. And, and I subsubsequently thought uh, I, I have um, I have a term for these types of mechanisms and I call them decompetitive mechanisms. And they are mechanisms for shaping or interdicting competition. Um, and uh, another person who, who talks about centripetal and centrifugal mechanisms of choice and centri- centrifugal mechanisms get us all to compete and basically drive us apart. Mm-hmm. And centripetal institutions would draw us together as we engage with one another, as we disagree with each other, they would uh, try to bring us closer together, not to get us to agree, but you know, to work out where we disagree. That's a way of bringing us closer together and so on. It's also a way of having a meaningful conversation. So, mm-hmm. so that's my sort of uh, thought about uh, an inspiration for the way to think about this. And I would just add that one of the things that Elon Musk wants to do, I'm less excited about his one size fits all plans just because I mean, who knows what they are um, and who knows. And, and it seems to me that the devil in this is in the detail. And if he wants to keep making money, if he wants to just keep making money as quickly as he can, then it's more likely to be in his interest to do stuff a bit like Twitter does and certainly to have a kind of uh, a quick administrative procedure, just kick people off, not have appeals, you know, just just that's how to make money. So so um, if you're after a one size fits all approach, uh, it, it, I think that's uh, probably the profit maximizing approach. We don't know what he'll do, but again, just throwing it open does, you then end up with a new frontier to police because there are some things that you really shouldn't allow people to say, and it's all very difficult. Uh, but one thing that Elon Musk has said, which I think is full of interest, is that he is interested in trying to open source these algorithms mm-hmm. and particularly to have algorithmic pluralism. So I can put into my Twitter uh, I can say what kind of Twitter experience I want. And there would be, and different organizations can build different algorithms and I can get advice on those algorithms by reading blogs and so on. And I say, look, I'm on Twitter most of the time for to learn stuff to mainly, just, I mean, I mainly, you know, these are very short things. So you sort of cruise around. I don't find debate on Twitter even at the best of times, all that good, but sometimes it can be very good. So I can tell Twitter that that's the sort of experience I want and it will uh, and it will present me with things. And then I might flick the switch and say, I want to, I'm, I'm going to spend the next half an hour looking at people abusing each other and generally trying to make fun of each other. And, uh, and I'll be looking at a different sort of Twitter and I'll use a different sort of algorithm. So that's the sort of thing that can be done. I mean, I think that's very interesting. Um, I have no real way of anticipating whether it'll make the world as a whole better or not better. It'll make it better for me. Um, how people will use their 
choices, well, so far we've seen that people behave badly on Twitter and maybe they'll choose bad algorithms as well. Um, yeah. Uh, and maybe they'll and maybe they'll prove to be uh, profit suppressing for Elon Musk, and maybe he'll say, "Look, I borrowed a lot of money to invest in this thing, and I need to make more money." Yeah, I mean, I do find that fascinating—the um, idea of putting more control in the hands of local actors over the way in which they, their interactions are, are are governed or structured. Um, and to go back to McIntyre, since you brought McIntyre up, I, I think there's a fundamental, I would say McIntyre is probably one of the authors who has most influenced my own thinking. Um, he was at my university at University of Notre Dame, where I did my PhD. Um, ah, he, in Indiana. In Indiana. In India, yes. Um, yes. And, um, and, and so he, he basically... Uh, it was in the background, let's say. It was sort of by osmosis almost. I would say he just had a lot of influence over me, even though I he hardly taught me at all. So, um, I mean, I asked him to be on my PhD thesis uh, dissertation committee, and he refused very, very, very bluntly. But, 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 but of course, then I realized he's a very nice man, but he's just a very direct in his style. Well, and he's also he's also a superstar, so he's got to choose what he does very well, carefully. Exactly, exactly. But, yeah. but but he's a very genuine, a very very genuine kind of person. But yeah. but, but in any case, one of the points that he he he's made um, repeatedly and that has influenced me a lot. It's in After Virtue as well, and it has to do with the 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 value of small small size communities, communities that are not excessively large um, yeah yeah and yeah. um and and it has a lot to do with actually uh, pedagogical issues to do with um sort of how we can respond to role models and how we can um even transmit coherent values uh, across generations yeah um and basically the idea is that in a in in a smaller community um you have the possibility of uh of structuring social life um according to a certain set of ideals um to do with you know human well-being and uh human relationships and friendship and virtue um yeah. and and those kinds of uh interactions are are, are maybe you could say um, they can be commercialized, but it's possible for them not to be commercialized. At, 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 and it's you might say there's some advantage to working at a small scale. Um, and you might have, it might give you a little bit more control over the interactions and over the dynamics, over say global influences over those interactions um, but 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 basically, I'm I'm trying to apply this thinking to the public sphere, and just to say that if it's possible to, if it was possible to create pockets of nor of of norms or of norm norm um, and value driven practices within Twitter mm. um, that were not governed by one size fits all rules, yeah. Yeah. Um that that maybe um some of those communities would be horrible communities to be in and horrible 
uh, groups to be participating in, but others of them might actually yeah. be quite interesting yeah. and quite yeah. quite enriching. I don't know yeah. what you think of that kind of. Does that uh, capture... well? Yeah. So I like the idea. I also think it's a little bit. I mean, it's um, people have been talking like this. You know, I guess since Thomas Carlyle. Um, so we've got this juggernaut of global capitalism coming down the wire since the 18th century. And everyone is completely spooked out by it, basically, as they should be. When you see the sort of, well, the juggernaut that it is, it's very scary. And we've got a fair way so far. And in many ways, certainly economically, it's been fantastically just, just unprecedentedly good. Um, but very often, uh, well, people then tell this story about small communities. And of course, it's very, it's, it's quite integral to the sense of the, na the nation in the United States, which is quite a decentralized country. A lot of the, uh, it's much more decentralized than Australia. Australia has far more land per person, but we're, we're in these giant sucker cities on the coast and there's really nothing, there's very little population elsewhere. Um, so this idea of small communities is a is is a is is one that a lot of people put their hope in, and I think it's a it's a nice idea. But I but 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 the world is not going to wait for this, and you know there is so much money to them. You know what was what was one of these incredible words of Silicon Valley in about sort of the early two two thousands uh, the aughts say 2005, the word was scale. That was where you made real money. Uh, Facebook was scaling. Google scaled. Uh, Amazon created the infrastructure for any business to scale uh, without going and buying all the infrastructure to scale. You, they would just hire that from Amazon. So our, our society, our economy, our powerful people are in love with scale. Um, and that might be the death of us. Um, but I, but, but, but I, you know, I want to sort of acknowledge what you've said, and I, I sort of agree with it. Um, one of the things that, um, uh, but, but I guess I'm more excited about prospects of doing things at scale and still somehow not toxifying them as much as we have found uh, Twitter toxifies them, and they're, uh, they're, Alistair McIntyre mentions the to uh, Toyota production system. That's at scale. Toyota is the, I think it's the most profitable car company in the world still. Um, and it is a very big car company. And it, it is, it is um, well, McIntyre signs up to saying, this is the sort of thing I'm talking about. And I've written quite a bit about Toyota and it certainly makes a lot more sense than the, uh, than a lot of attempts to scale things. So that's the first thing I'd say. The other thing I'd say is that um, one way to look at what, a couple of things, one way to look at this is I always think of Wikipedia here. And I think that everybody falls in love with the wrong thing about Wikipedia. It's open source software is the same, that's peer production. Everybody falls in love with this idea that by simply opening it up to anyone, you get this miracle taking place. But of course, you wouldn't get a miracle if they hadn't solved another problem. And the problem they've solved is the problem of meritocracy. Behind Wikipedia is a 
<clears throat> a highly articulated meritocracy. It's a hierarchy. It's got about eight levels, and yet it is of volunteers. And so that's a decompetitive type of idea. It's, it's not people getting managed by their bosses with KPIs and optimization and any of that sort of stuff. It is people getting involved at the low, at lower levels, making large contributions, and then rising through the ranks. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an environment in which people can play to their strengths. Now, I don't want to get too, I don't want to wax too lyrical about it because some nasty stuff goes on in there as well. But that to me is so one thing twitter could do is twitter could i i, I it, to, to address your problem of what they did to you i mm. think uh absolute ground zero here is to have systems of appeals but not systems of appeals that they control so they could do they could build <coughs> communities and hierarchies not a single one necessarily of of mechanisms that you could have gone to where you knew that the people who were looking at your case, some of them would be a bit like me, others would be different, but that we'd all come through a process where we'd impressed each other as on the level, uh, as people who are genuinely trying to answer this question are able to understand that there's an issue. Uh, this guy has started talking about ivermectin and the medical community have gone apeshit about I ivermectin, so that's an issue. So therefore we have to try and deal with it on the merits and we go through the process and we say, no, David's okay. This is why he's okay. And that's why we've made that decision. So, mm -hmm. so I think those things are easily possible. Um, and that's then, I mean, what, what that's appealing to is not, not something that necessarily will impress Elon Musk because Elon Musk is thinking of this as a digital asset and he's thinking of scaling and therefore he's thinking of open sourcing the algo. And I'm thinking of analogies to open sourcing the people. Um, uh, and, uh, but, but, you know, that, that, that's, that's a thing that, uh, that, 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 that's a, that's a hint of a direction that we could take that might create uh, room for sort of graduated response rather than just a bunch of rules, one size fits all rules just projected downwards. Um, yeah. and, uh, and finally, I'll say that the ultimate decompetitive institution is the jury, uh, which is random selection. You can't compete to be on a jury. And so there are lots of, uh, uh, you know, and, and I won't try and there's lots to be said about that lots that other people haven't said about that and I have <laughs> he said modestly um, and that's another way to cut through the toxicity and get people to get and, and appeal to the better angels of people's nature and if you see people in citizen juries and things they they behave very well because they, they think it's an honor to be there representing the community and trying to come up with a, the right answer to a difficult question. Right, yes, I, I, I find all of that very interesting. And um, I guess I, I, like, I, I don't have any objections to it. Like I think that, um, I think that some form of pluralism, structural pluralism to build that yeah. into 
into user in, into what you might call the user experience to build it into uh, the way yeah. in which yeah the way in which information is managed in Twitter and, and yeah. moderated and moderated so all of that is sounds reasonable to me so what I'm going to do is I think it's helpful to do this I'm going to imagine the response of somebody who is a big fan of misinf- of of say uh, Twitter's current content moderation rules yeah um, and uh, because it's I, I do think it's a very seductive argument for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people uh, instinctively uh, buy into this argument um, when it's put in front of them. And that's part of the reason why a lot of people are probably very happy that people like me are not on Twitter. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and put this, ta- this argument out uh, there in front of you to see what you think of it. Mm. Um, so someone listening to your, to, your, to your position or your explanation or your, your proposition or proposal might say something like this. They'd say, okay, so it looks like you want to introduce more diversity and pluralism into the way in which information is managed and controlled within the public sphere. And they'd say, um, but actually, I like, I like the way it's controlled at the moment because um, my biggest, one of my biggest fears, they might say, is that um, bad information might get sort of uh, might become um, contagious? It might just sort of transmit yeah. and become viral through the internet, and then they would usually give the example of people who criticize uh, the vaccination campaigns, and they would yeah. say, or the yeah. safety of vaccines, and then they'd say, "Oh, but for public health, it's really important that people get good quality information." and make their choices in an informed way, um, it's good for everyone. So yeah. we've really got to clamp down on this flow of mm. misinformation. And then they'd yeah. say, so so they'd say, oh, but Twitter has appointed these committees of medical experts or of people who at least draw on medical expertise and official authorities. And, and, and these committees can clamp down and they can suspend the accounts of people who are misbehaving or giving bad information to the public. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it would be, and these people who would make this argument would say it would be a disaster for Twitter if Elon Musk bought it, because if he allows uh, a more moderate content, a more, let's say, permissive content moderation policies, then he's going to allow the public to be exposed to dangerous information that will put mm. in, in at risk public health. What, yeah. what 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 I'm I'm as you can see as you can tell I am playing devil's advocate completely here, but I I like to hear what your response to that. Well, is. well, I don't know whether you are. I mean, let's say that. So so you in favour of people coming on and saying that the uh, that that uh, a Russian scientist has proven that all of the vaccinations lead to autism uh, the covid vaccinations lead to autism that the death rate is 50 times higher than uh has been reported from vaccinations or maybe 50 you know sort of high enough that most of the deaths from covid are in fact deaths from covid vaccinations what's your what would you do in that what do you think twitter's policy should be for that well, um, I personally think that 
um, um, I think that uh, I think that when we think about it at a structural level, first of all, um, I'm not sure if it's advisable that there be one mechanism for um, for arbitrating those for let's say for um, monitoring and um, restricting uh, information, medical information. Um, that is that occurs across all. I'm not sure how many millions there are on Twitter. Um, let's just say there were. Well, there are probably at least. Uh, There's a few. Yeah, I mean, I imagine there are a few hundred million. Yeah, I let's imagine say there, there were a few hundred let's, million. Let's say if you ex- exclude the bots, uh, apparently there are quite a few bots. So, yeah, yeah, there are lots so, of bots. Yeah. yeah, so there could be up to twenty percent or more that are bots. But let's say there were two hundred million good faith users on Twitter. Um, yeah. that are real human beings. Um, to me, the, the, the difficulty is uh, I can agree that it's not good for, say, um, for obviously false information uh, to be propagated um, through and, and, and especially to be propagated and, and, and proliferate on, on, on Twitter. But, um, but then that does not commit me to uh, let's say endorsing a completely centralized mechanism for dealing with that information, dealing with that misinformation. Um, and I give the example in some of my posts, I give the example of someone who says that if I have a nice cup of tea, it will cure my COVID, you know, yeah, like okay. say someone said that, like just uh, <coughs> some kind yeah. of natural remedy is yeah. great, fantastic. And that will cure your COVID. Well, yeah. well, um, well. Actually, that kind of information could produce a lot of complacency, and a lot of people would not seek medical treatment if they took it seriously. So yeah. there could be people's lives could be at risk by mm. taking that information seriously. So, yeah. so I guess that's kind of my response. First of all, is sort of at the structural level. Yes, in the print, in principle, I think <laughs> that kind of information needs to be restricted. But, right. but I would prefer that it be done by smaller communities of users um, rather than by one centralized mechanism. Um, but let me put the question back to you and say, yeah. uh, what do you, wh- what's your response to, uh, what do you think should be done about misinformation? Yeah, so I think what I would like to do is, uh, in some sense, I mean, I want there to be lots of experimentation and we can look at different things what works and and what makes different people and different communities happy and that's not but that's not necessarily a binary choice of of banning or not banning that's to do with what what the algorithm promotes and stuff like that um so 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 i'm much more comfortable with the idea of pluralism there um of course pluralism sounds great but basically we have what I call the pluribus unum question to answer when it comes to uh, lots of issues in public policy. Should we invade Iraq? Shouldn't we? Or should we ban uh, clearly misleading statements of some health significance? Um, And what I would like to do there is I would want, I would really put a lot of effort into ensure what really matters, I think, is the legitimacy and the felt legitimacy of that of of the process that 
uh, leads to the conclusion. So that you, you really must be in a situation where people say, as was common when I was a kid, actually, uh, you know, it was regarded as a bad thing. I remember when I was a kid, I was a bit too young to get caught up in the Vietnam stuff, but I was brought up to believe that it would be wrong to dodge the draft, but it wouldn't be wrong to be a conscientious objector. In other words, you, you say, I think it's wrong. You acknowledge the state's right to say you have to go. And then it also creates a capacity for you to be punished, uh, not with death, <laughs> but you say, well, I don't agree with the public, but I accept the, 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 the need to make rules and I accept the legitimacy of the legal system. Mm -hmm. So here, I think it's, I think we're being a little bit, we're not putting ourselves through the necessary discomfort <laughs> that I was talking about earlier, not mm -hmm. to try to come up with a one size fits all answer or to, to, to come up with a a mechanism according to which we can say this should say yes and no, yes or no, and it probably has to do that in the, uh, you know, we have to, uh, in the first instance, it needs to be a one size fits all thing. And, you know, we may want to vary it. But so what I would do is I would have what I've called decompetitive, much more decompetitive mechanisms. The mm -hmm. So Twitter would be hands off here. Twitter would involve a community of randomly selected people on Twitter, and they would try to develop. Uh, a, a, so, so ultimately, I like the idea of people being promoted to higher levels by um, their peers, regarding them as good folks. Uh, it's not a, <clears throat> it's not a competition. It is the identification. <clears throat> of people who can do this job well, and that can be done at a series of different levels. Let me, I, I wasn't going to take you through this, but I will take you through this because it's sort of relevant to making clear what I'm talking about. In a citizen jury that was held in Adelaide about five years ago, uh, it was a difficult question, which is, should South Australia take back nuclear waste when it's exported the uranium? And the Premier set up a citizens' assembly of 340 randomly selected people from South Australia. They needed spokespeople because they'd make decisions and then they wanted people to represent what the what the committee what the citizen assembly had said. And they didn't want to have an election because an election is competitive, and this is a, a to use my lingo is a decompetitive process. So they did something I think really very clever and very fertile for us to think about these systems of merit selection, decompetitive systems of merit selection. They said, who wants to be a spokesperson? 10 people stood up, 15 people stood up. They said, right, you can sit down now uh, and, and point to the third person on your right. They stood up. They said, right, we're now going to go to a room. It's the fourth day of a citizen jury, lots of people have said a lot of things. People got to know each other pretty well. And they go into a room and they spend two hours. The first hour, they work out the criteria according to which spokespeople should be chosen. And the second hour, working out who they've met who meet those criteria. Mm -hmm. So you can see that that's, a, that, that that's a merit selection method with a lot of integrity. With mm -hmm. It's a merit selection method that a lot of people might end up if the decision went against them saying, well, 
it did go against me. I still disagree with them, but I accept that they're the people who are making this decision. I accept their legitimacy. And so I think we can use mechanisms like that. I think we could use mechanisms like that in lots of different areas, but we can use mechanisms like that. We can use them again and again. It's a sort of a scaling mechanism, if you like, mm-hmm. where you could have, you, you, let's say you had one of these things in lots of different cities. And then this panel of people then met in larger groups and it happened again and so on. Um, so I think there are lots of ways we can reinvent our meritocratic structures and if we don't we're pretty screwed because people are um and i don't know whether this will work because people are so wound up and so irrational um but they can see these systems being gamed by elites they can see people reducing you know bankers just running off with billions of dollars and no one goes to jail they can see public servants who, uh, or, or they can see whole layers of very important administration in which no one ever gets sacked, or if they get sacked, they don't go to jail for doing terrible things. But we should try to actually make people accountable wherever they are in these layers, but we don't. And people are absolutely out of their mind with rage about that. And so that's why if Twitter sets up a bunch of experts, then I don't think we've got a chance of those crazies saying, well, that, you know, I don't agree with them, but I accept the legitimacy of their decision. Whereas I think we do have a chance with these sorts of mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it really shows how, how complex and difficult it is once you, once you, once you admit the principle which seems to be almost impossible not to admit unless you are have a very strong libertarian line on it and just yeah. say, you know, uh, the costs are too high of permitting censorship. Therefore, if someone wants to give harmful misinformation, I'm willing to take that risk. That, that's a position that I, 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 can, I can kind of understand it. But I think, I think that basically, um, basically the person who thinks there should be censorship um, has to, as you have tried to lay out there, has to show that there are that, that it's possible to develop mechanisms yeah. that can that can uh, um, domesticate power, that can yes, make nicely make, put. Yeah, because I mean nicely put. Because basically, uh, basically, what's happened every time I see a notice in any context almost that says you know, such and such an account has to be censored because of misinformation. Almost every time I see that happening, I'm very curious. It makes me curious to know what the content was. And um, and, uh, because, and in fact, it makes me suspicious that there might have been some truth to what was said. Um, So I normally go in and I look and see it. So usually it's something very, very often it's something quite moderate. um, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Somebody says... You know, somebody says something like, um, I'm 20 and I'm in perfectly good health. I don't see why I should undertake the risk of a vaccine. Yeah. And then they yeah. say, oh, no, no, you, you've just given vaccine misinformation. No, they've expressed yeah. a risk evaluation. Exactly. A totally personal risk evaluation. So, so, so uh, it's, it just, uh, it, it, is, it, it is difficult to um, have these procedures in place without them becoming politicized and ideologized. 
Um, but I do think that one aspect you've touched on, which I've personally experienced um, in my own case, um, I'm very I'm very stubborn. So I actually appealed my I appealed my Twitter suspension about six times. Yeah. Um, and each time I just because there's a little button you click, so it's it's pretty unco- it doesn't cost anything really. You just put in a few words, explain your position, and um, and from the beginning. There is, I've had exactly the same response from the very beginning, which is a pro forma email saying, you have been suspended permanently because of repeat violations. Yeah. Um, They don't tell you, they don't detail it. That's your your account will not be restored. Yeah. Um, That's all they say. And it's, it's basically the same letter from the very beginning to the very end. Yeah. I think, I think at the very beginning, they did say it was because of COVID misinformation. Um, but, but, but the point is what's clear is the human involvement is minimal. Um, and that's right. uh, Well, it's cost, it's, it's profit maximizing. Well, exactly. And, um, and so, but the equity or fairness is completely shunted to the side. Um, and, uh, it's very easy to get suspended on Twitter. Actually, if you're, if you're saying something they don't like. Um, so, uh, I think just having, a human appeals process sure. and having multiple committees yeah. would already mitigate this significantly. A, a great deal. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And and so, yeah, as 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 Jack Dorsey says, the appropriate uh, the appropriate owner for Twitter is a public trust. Uh, it is a public good, and these are the kinds of quote inefficiencies that are appropriate in the public sphere. Uh, we're not at all close to that. And, and, and also, if we did give it to the public sector, well, the public sector is full of power and uh, abuses of various kinds. And um, it would, you know, it would be a dog's breakfast of a response. But, uh, but I think it would be better at this, this function, which is to give people some sort of right of appeal. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's it, but our public sector is not in in it, so a a textbook a politics or a economics textbook will tell you this should be a public sector asset um, or a public sector utility. But we don't have them. But, but our public sector doesn't have anything like the maturity to manage it in the way that it needs to be managed. Um, and our our private sector has greater maturity, but not the incentives to do it. So that's the. That's the situation that we're in, and people like you and me and other people can try and uh, think about what they, and talk about how we can build the institutions that can do a better job than what we're doing at the moment. Okay, well that sounds good to me. So we'll have to keep this conversation going. And um, yes, uh, please have, let's we, do. We have gone over the hour, but uh, I really. Yeah. I've, I've enjoyed the conversation and I'm hopeful that the, that the listeners will get something out of it as well. So Good. Th- thanks a lot for coming along, Nicholas. Thanks very much. And uh, you sent me a long list of questions. We've probably only got through about a fifth of them. So maybe we should do it again sometime. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Thanks a lot. See you again. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.